This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Hello, I'm Dr. Nancy Lotridge-Anderson, president of New Perspectives, a fee-only financial advising firm and co-host of Money Talks. For over 10 years, Money Talks has been answering your personal financial questions and sharing knowledge about money management. Money Talks can be heard Tuesdays at 9 a.m. on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts can be found on our website, money.mpbonline.org, or on your smart device's podcasting platform. The legal information presented on In Legal Terms is meant to provide general information about the topics discussed and is not necessarily the opinion of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. The information conveyed does not create any type of attorney-client relationship. Please consult an attorney provider before making any decisions about your specific legal questions. Welcome to In Legal Terms from MPB Think Radio, the show all about you and your rights. Our host is Professor Richard Gershon of the University of Mississippi School of Law. I'm Liz Gill. Hello, Professor Gershon. Good morning, Liz, and uh, it's a great day. I hope you're having a great day. And uh, it's great to to welcome uh, Attorney Max Myers back to the show. Uh, He is the Director of Consumer Protection for the Mississippi Center for Justice, uh, and he's been a guest before. Uh, good morning, Max. Um, please remind us about your background and how you became interested in the MCJ. Good morning, Professor, and good morning, uh, Liz. It's great to be with you all again, and thank you to all of our listeners for having me here as well. Um, I am uh, originally from Michigan, but came to Mississippi by way of the Teach for America program about 12 years ago, um, and then my experiences in the classroom, particularly uh, some of the you know continued vestiges of uh, work that needs to continue to be done in, in the schools is what led me to go to law school. Uh, and then when I came, when I came back, MCJ, the Mississippi Center for Justice, was a really natural fit. There, we're, we're an organization committed to um, anti uh, anti racism as well as anti poverty work here at, at the state. We're a statewide organization, Biloxi, Jackson, Indianola. And uh, in this work, I get to uh, interact with folks from around the state who are particularly experiencing issues of foreclosure. Um, you know, issues with their mortgage, as well as combating payday lending and trying to give folks an alternative to that. And you were, you were in, did immigration work before uh, that, that work, so. I did. Um, yeah, I was originally, I, I um, so when I first, first joined the Mississippi Center for Justice, I was um, on their immigration team, and a lot of my work was based around the response to the 2019 ICE raids. Uh, just for our listeners' uh, sake of, of remembering it, that was um, in October 7, 2019. About 700 folks were arrested uh, at their jobs here in central Mississippi. Uh, almost half of those folks were uh, deported, and the, and the other half were left with some sort of an immigration case. Honestly, some of those folks' cases are still pending today, actually, uh, and people still live in a lot of uncertainty in that sense. Well, we appreciate your good work, and, and today we appreciate the fact that you're here to talk to us about a long-standing and not always well-understood institution, the Supreme Court of the United States. So why is today and this week especially good to be talking about the Supreme Court? So this is—yesterday uh, was the first day of the 2022 uh, Supreme Court term. It starts—historically, um, it started on the first Monday of October. Um, and yesterday, we already heard two cases. Today and tomorrow, there will also be oral arguments. Um, and this this term is the—well, I guess the, ba- the last couple terms, we've had new members. Um, this is the 
first term for the newest member of the court, uh, Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson. Um, she's also the uh, the the first African American woman to sit on the court, um, and it's it's been really great getting to hear her already in oral arguments yesterday. Um, she asked quite a bit of questions, very uh, you know deep deep and thoughtful questions, and so it's real great to hear hear on the bench. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. We are so grateful that we have this platform, this opportunity to bring experts from our community to our community to inform you, to educate you, to let you know how national events impact us here in Mississippi and our listening area, which is parts of Tennessee, Alabama, Louisiana, and Arkansas. We're not taking your phone calls today because it is our drive time, so we would love for you to give us a call at our number 1-888-372-4483. You can make your contribution that way, or you can go to mpbonline.org. We are talking today about the Supreme Court, and we're so happy to welcome from the Mississippi Center for Justice our guest, Attorney Max Myers. And Max, before we get into like the questions that we we prepared, I, you know, you, you and I were talking about the fact that you listened to one of the cases yesterday. How do, how can our our listeners actually listen to the oral arguments in, in the cases and and uh, you know find out what they're about? So if uh, people want to listen live uh, while the while the case is actually being heard, this is I believe the second year now uh, that that that. that service has been provided. Um, it started as a result of COVID uh, and the Supreme Court's webpage. Um, and I, I think it's SCOTUS.gov, but if not, just, you know, for listeners, Google SCOTUS and go to the page that has the .gov on it. Uh, and there is a link on the side to live oral arguments and people can stream them live. Uh, for folks that work uh, during the daytime, I'm one of them. Uh, there's also an option to listen on demand when you get home. Um, I, my coworkers uh, know that I like to listen into the cases sometimes when I go for my runs in the morning and afternoon. Uh, that's always an option as well for people on the go. Um, but I, I, you know, this is also in, in addition, I'll mention the first term since COVID. Yes, yesterday was the first day actually since COVID that members of the public have been allowed to attend oral arguments. Uh, for the last two years, it had been closed uh, because of coronavirus to um, to limit only attendance only to um, Supreme Court clerks, a couple members of the press, as well as um, the uh, the members of the of the court as well. Okay, so for those of you who don't have Google at your fingertips, SupremeCourt.gov is their website. SupremeCourt.gov and uh, courtroom seating for oral argument sessions for the upcoming term will be provided to the public, members of the Supreme Court bar and the press. The building will otherwise be closed to the public until further notice. And we'll have that link on the show. And uh, the court will convene for public session and at they convened an hour ago and the justices will hear two one-hour oral arguments and we'll have that link on the webpage for this show in legal terms mpbonline.org and if you do just roll down a little bit quick links it has live audio and there's one thing that uh, by the way there's also a website o-y-e-z uh, that for years has now carried uh, synopsis of cases and so you can go back and look at some of the older cases as well and even oral arguments there uh, many have been recorded so 
Uh, there's a lot. There are a lot of ways to, to find out what the Supreme Court does. But um, yeah, uh, so Max, let's talk a little bit about that. How does how does a case even go to the U.S. Supreme Court? How, how do they choose this group of cases? I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, currently, and then I'll mention kind of historically at the outset that this is not always the case. Uh, we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about how uh, these decisions are made about what cases can make it up to the Supreme Court. But currently, the way that it works is um, they are a court of limited jurisdiction, uh, and that means pretty much what it sounds like. They are limited as to what kind of cases they can take and from where they can take the cases. Um, there are, at the out, I'll say that there are a couple types of cases that automatically go to the Supreme Court. The most notable of that is a case involving a state versus a state. That's called original jurisdiction, just meaning that the case actually originates in the Supreme Court. But that's a rare exception to the general rule that the Supreme Court is an appeals court. It's the highest appeals court in the land. And so for a case to actually make it up there, um, it has to pass several layers of other courts. And the loser of that, of, of those court decisions, have to uh, apply for something called a writ of certiorari. Uh, I never pronounce it correctly, so I'm probably just going to refer to it as a writ of cert, C-E-R-T. Um, and when someone petitions the court for a writ of cert, they're essentially explaining to the, to the Supreme Court the reasons why their case is important enough for them to hear. Um, think about things like, uh, well, Professor, we were talking about this earlier, split in the circuits, um, the, which I'll come back to describe what that is. But th if there are several different appeals courts in the country that are ruling different ways on the same issue, that is a really good justification for the Supreme Court to take that case. Similarly, uh, if it is something that's considered ripe for review, so an issue that has been uh, in the in the public eye for a long time and there's not been an opportunity or there hasn't been a maybe there's been an opportunity and not a success for one of the political branches like Congress or the president to um, to figure it out. At that point, the Supreme Court would possibly pick up that case to decide it because they believe that, you know, they, uh, they're, they're, they are the court of last review and that they at the end of the day need to make a decision uh, on that issue. And uh, does anybody get the right of direct appeal to the Supreme Court? They, they may automatically have the right to, to appeal to the Supreme Court without a writ of cert? Uh, without a writ of cert. So, that, you know, with, with original jurisdiction, that, I mean, that would be uh, one, one example of someone could get in that way through states. That also applies in addition to state versus states, um, ambassadors and other high-ranking uh, international figures. They, if, they're, if they're involved in a lawsuit, they are allowed to have that case heard automatically uh, in, in front of the Supreme Court. And then I'll also mention, um, and this is actually going to come up later on in the show when we talk about some of the particular cases that the court is hearing this term, there is a mechanism that's been created by Congress where for certain cases involving the Voting Rights Act and voting rights, people don't have to go to an intermediary appeals court. They can actually have their case heard at the district level by a three-judge panel, and then uh, the loser of that can appeal automatically to the Supreme Court rather than having to go the traditional path of district-level court, uh, appeals court, which is a circuit court, and then uh, to the Supreme Court. So, uh, okay, so I have a question. You know, we're starting in October, and they had, you know, Dobbs, and we heard about some stuff in June. So the the court has not, wasn't in session in July and August and September. It's They've started hearing cases in September, and it seems like it's 
going pretty fast. Uh, about how many cases do they have, and then do they take a break? Because, you know, we heard that leaked information about Dobbs. So I guess there's a time where they hear cases, there's a time they think about the cases, and then there's a time they release the verdicts, the answers, whatever you call that. Opinions. Opinions, okay. How, how does... It, it, Cl clean up everything I just said. Certainly, yeah. Um, and I will, um, so I, I'll, I'll mention that historically there really was a, a pretty big divide between one term versus another. Justices would actually leave Washington at the end of the term in, in June, um, and they would go and, you know, Anthony Plant Kennedy. their crops. Exactly, yeah, sure. They would do that, uh, travel internationally, speak at, um, you know, judicial conferences around the world. Uh, Justice Kennedy and, and Justice O'Connor were, were pretty well known for doing that. Um, it, Oliver Wendell Holmes used to go to his uh, his summer home in, I think it's Beverly, Massachusetts. Um, people would have to come and find him if they wanted to have an emergency, uh, you know, stay issued or something. Uh, but in, in modern times, the court really continues, you know, all throughout the summer, there were um, smaller, or not, not smaller, I guess, but lesser well-known cases that came to the court in an emergency capacity in which um, one of the members of the court had to decide on whether to accept or, you know, leave in place the ruling of a lower court. Um, that happens continually. But to go back to the original question about kind of how the court schedule shapes up over the year, um, so at the beginning of the term, actually before the first Monday in October, I believe it's the, I think it's, it's either the last Friday in September or the first Friday in October, depending on how the calendar works. There's something that's called the long conference. Uh, and that is, uh, sort of what it sounds like. It's a very lengthy, uh, judicial conference between just the justices of the court. The nine members sit together, um, and, and go through all of the writs of cert, which is what I'd mentioned, uh, how people actually get their cases to the Supreme Court and the judges vo or the justices vote on that. And uh, that will add. So yesterday we got news that about that nine cases were added to this year's term. That's in addition to the already 20 to 25 cases that the Supreme Court had decided from the Max, previous year. Max, hang on. We'll have, oh, to, we'll have to, to be continued. <laughs> to be continued. To be continued. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Our guest today is attorney Max Myers from the Mississippi Center for Justice. Our on-air fundraising campaign is on, and we're asking you to give for the love of Mississippi. So if you have a few minutes to spare right now, it's important we hear from you today. This is In Legal Terms. Not everybody has a chance to listen to our show live, so if you've missed any of our program, you can hear the whole show from our website inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. Our host is Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law. I'm Liz Gill. We're with our guest today, Max Myers from the Mississippi Center for Justice. We're learning about the current session of the U.S. Supreme Court. And just a reminder, as fascinating as our show is today, we're not taking your phone calls. Instead, we would love for you to consider contributing to support this show or whatever show you love. Tell us why you're contributing. I love reading the comments from folks to find out why they contribute. Just go to mpbonline.org or you can call us at 1-888-888. 
372-4483. And we caught you in the middle of an answer, Max, before I was asking you kind of like the calendar and how the flow of the Supreme Court works. And you, we were talking about in September is when in the first Friday or last Friday is when they start hearing arguments. That's so the um, so the last the last Friday of September or the first Friday in October depending on the calendar is when um, there's a long conference. That's when all of the cert petitions from over the summer uh, that had accumulated justices go over that together. Uh, if a particular cert gets uh, petition gets four votes or more, uh, then that is enough to actually hear the case. That term, uh, the the term. Oral arguments actually start on the first Monday of October every year, and then from there, which um, was yesterday, which for was yesterday, everybody who's listening, yeah, and then people, and and then the, the justices basically, um, I, this was an analogy that I'd used a moment ago. They they build the ship while they sail it. Uh, they continue to pick up more cases. Uh, they accept more cert petitions throughout the course of the term that some of them will get added to that calendar for this year. And uh, if it gets past a certain point, typically uh, March or April, if they start accepting cases at that point, those get calendared for the following term. Cool. And, uh, you know, and part of that process, um, you know, just uh, I was uh, fortunate to work with a group of people to do something called an amicus brief. So we're not even parties, we're not representing either of the parties, but we thought that uh, we, we wanted them to accept a case for cert that involved an issue of the attorney-client privilege. And uh, they turned us down, but you know, but they, that was just part of the process too. So, uh, you know, how many, how many votes does it take on the, on the Supreme Court justices to, to grant a petition of cert? It takes four. Um, so, it, you know, it takes five votes to win a case, uh, but it only takes four votes to hear it. And that can really, uh, it's not its not always the case that, oh, if, if you get five votes to hear the case, then, oh, obviously that case has already been decided because it might be, um, you know, two justices that are opposed uh, to the case and then, uh, you know, two justices that, that are, you know, opposed to the petitioner and then two justices that support the respondent, for example, um, opposite parties. And, and so it, 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 there are also situations, and I, I think the case that we're going to talk about in, in a little bit related to affirmative action is a good example of that in which for the liberal case, for the liberal justices or justices that are, you know, traditionally considered uh, liberal, uh, they would have voted to almost certainly deny to hear that affirmative action case because the only thing that can come of this case being heard this term uh, is a, a giant step back for affirmative action. So they would not have wanted the, the court to, heard, to hear that case. However, uh, as, as we know, that the uh, Students for Fair Admission versus Harvard and, and SFFA versus UNC, um, those cases were consolidated into a case that will be heard this year on Halloween. Uh, and so obviously there were at least four votes to hear that. And interestingly enough, you mentioned uh, Justice Brown Traxler, who uh, uh, is um, you know, sitting at her first term, actually recused herself from that uh, Harvard case. Um, and that's, you know, I, and I give her a lot of credit for that. Can, do you, can you talk a little bit about why she recused herself? Certainly. So the history, the procedural history of this case uh, with the consolidation and the unconsolidating is actually um, somewhat unique that the two cases one from harvard one from unc uh were filed separately uh for you know review for cert, you know petitions for cert um and when the justices granted those cases this was 
prior to Justice Jackson joining the court, um, and they had consolidated those, those cases, so they had squished them together to make one single case that they would hear as one oral argument. After Judge Jackson joined the court, however, uh, they dis the, the justices decided to uh, deconsolidate or separate these. I don't think deconsolidate is a word, but uh, they decided to separate these cases um, because Justice Jackson is a former member of the, or maybe a current member, but I, either way, a, a, a member at some point in her life of the board uh, of, of folks that, that look over the uh, Harvard University, and she has no relationship whatsoever to the University of North Carolina, and so she had to recuse herself. That means st step back and not participate in the Harvard case. Um, there's no, I'll say quickly, there is no rule as, you know, dictating when a justice has to do that. It is completely the decision of the justice, um, and Justice Jackson decided to recuse herself in fairness from the Harvard case, but uh, you know this is an affirmative action, and, and she mentioned this during her confirmation hearings. Is, I mean, for everybody in, in the country, it's an incredibly important issue. Uh, Justice Jackson mentioned that it is particularly important for her and for um, you know what what the, the whole her whole outlook on the judicial system, and so she looked for an opportunity and, and a way to be able to still participate in, in the UNC case. Thank you. That was. Uh, yeah, that that, I found that interesting, and also I think that was the ethical thing for her to do, and, and uh, you know, it, it speaks well of the kind of justice she's going to be. I so let, uh, let's circle back for just a second, because I don't think people really know even the system of you, you mentioned the cir a circuit split. So let's let's kind of let's talk a little bit about what it exactly is a circuit split that would give rise to a writ of certiorari. Absolutely. So there, the federal judiciary is is based on a three-tier uh, system. District courts being um, the the entry-level court. That's you know, if I have a lawsuit that I want to bring, I go to the, you know, uh, here in Jackson, I would go to the Southern District for Mississippi uh, and file a case at the district court there. Um, if I lose that case, then I can take my appeal to a circuit court in Mississippi. We're part of the Fifth Circuit. Uh, there are uh, 11 circuits plus um, a D.C. circuit as well as a federal uh, circuit, which I'll talk about in a second. Um, and the, the, the circuits are basically a div you know, divvying up of the country based on geography um, and it, within those circuits, so the Fifth Circuit, which is Texas, Louisiana, and Mississippi, there can develop a uh, a body of law or th through decisions of that circuit that is different than what maybe the Ninth Circuit, for example, which is uh, you know the West Coast, uh, California, Arizona, Hawaii. Um, Washington, Oregon, Alaska, um, and uh, they, you know, they might develop, they might have heard a case on the exact same issue. Uh, so, you know, think about something related to something little like what, what can an appeals court judge look at as far as deciding facts and law and what kind of facts and law are they allowed to look, you know, what, what kind of, um, what, what kind of limitations do they have when they're reviewing a case that might there might be more strict limitations on on what types of fact uh, a circuit judge can look at in deciding a case in the Fifth Circuit, whereas in the Ninth Circuit they might say, oh, uh, you know, it's free for all. You can you can decide it. You know, you, all, you know, facts de novo. This is not real. Obviously, they would never say facts de novo. You know, brand new from from start. But um, if that were to happen, then eventually a case would come from one of those circuits to the Supreme Court and essentially point out that there is a split among the circuits as to how these, this particular type of a case is analyzed. 
And so, yeah, and, and really, I mean, what, I guess one way to look at it is that we, if we have, if we have one, we're supposed to have one national body of law, but different uh, circuits have, you know, different approaches or different interpretations of that law. And somebody living in California is under a different law than somebody living in Texas, potentially. So the Supreme Court's got to break the tie. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I mean, that, that that's great. I mean, I think that's, uh, thank you for that. Now, do any uh, cases straight from, like, uh, the Mississippi Supreme Court, for example, or state Supreme Courts ever get to the U.S. Supreme Court. Absolutely. So, uh, and, and this was something that was not necessarily clear in the Constitution. I, I, I mentioned, uh, I think, on last year's show that Article 3 of the Constitution, which is um, the part that that lays out the federal judiciary system, is one of the shortest of the articles. Uh, it has a a lot of details missing that have been filled in over the years by Congress. Uh, Congress has created laws in order to uh, provide for the types of cases and the procedures, and even for that matter, creating district courts, appeals courts, uh, and the number of seats on a court for that matter. Um, but one of the things that was not, one of the many things that was not clear in the Constitution in Article 3 was what types of cases from state courts, or for that matter, if state court cases can even come into the Supreme Court. Uh, and it wasn't until Justice Marshall, Chief Justice Marshall, uh, who uh, was appointed in the beginning of the 1800s and served until uh, the 1830s, um, who really you know, turned the federal judiciary from a rather weak branch, one in which um, there were at least two, two chief justices that uh, previous to him in the 1790s that turned down or resigned from the Supreme Court because they felt like the court was not prestigious enough and didn't have enough power in the country. Just, uh, Chief Justice Marshall uh, really grabbed that institution and, and shaped it, and in doing so, uh, they decided a couple of cases in, uh, that established the, the precedent, you know, the, the rule, basically, the, the unofficial, non-written rule, but official enough because it's a Supreme Court rule now, uh, you know, that has the, the weight of precedent that a, uh, a state case that involves uh, a federal issue, so maybe a federal law or a constitutional issue, that those can be picked up by the Supreme Court of the United States after they have exhausted, after the, the litigants have exhausted all of the, uh, the options under state law. So in other words, after there's a final judgment from the highest court in the state. Um, the, the, I looked this one up for the show, actually. The, the case that established that for the criminal cases was Cohen's versus Virginia in 1821. Um, and I remember, if I had more time this morning, I would have looked up for the civil case that established civil review of state Supreme Court cases. But uh, I'll, next year, I'll, I'll circle back if I'm invited back, and I'll have that case. Fair enough. We, we appreciate the research you've done. <laughs> um, but what about, uh, you know, the, um, this year, in fact, there's a voting rights case that is exactly that. It was decided by a state Supreme Court, and now uh, someone appealed it to the uh, U.S. Supreme Court. So uh, just to your point, I mean, that's that's happening this year, that pretty much any of the, any of the methods you talked about, including um, states going, you know, doing disputes between themselves, going directly to the Supreme Court, we got, we got one of those this year, too. So... Um, if listeners are interested, they can uh, catch up on any of those cases. But um, and so, um, you know, let, let's let's talk about then um, how many grants of cert are given on a particular year. Are there a lot of them? There's not a lot of them, and that number's gotten smaller over uh, the, the the past several decades. At the moment, that well, a couple of years ago during COVID, so the 2019-2020. Uh, 
term, they, they saw the fewest number of cases heard. I think it was like 56 uh, for the previous couple of years. And then currently it's back to averaging right around between 70 and 80 cases. But there were periods of time in the 80s under Chief Justice Berger where the court was hearing 200, 220 cases oh a year. Oh, my gosh. That's a lot. So I, I don't know. I used to think that people who argued before the Supreme Court, that was a select few. But if they're doing 200 a year, that could be that could be anybody. All right. 80s were crazy. <laughs> <laughs> if you our guest today is attorney Max Myers from the Mississippi Center for Justice. We're learning about the current session of the U.S. Supreme Court. If you are a supporter of MPB, thank you. Thank you for helping us to produce In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. It's our fall on-air fundraising campaign right now. So just follow the Donate Now link on our website, mpbonline.org, or we're not taking phone calls during the show, but you could call and make a contribution. That phone number is 888 372 4483 and tell them how much you absolutely love in legal terms. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Professor Richard Gershon is our expert host. I'm Liz Gill. We do hope that you'll subscribe to our podcast. You can also get the podcasts, are all the MPB Think Radio recordings from the website mpbonline.org slash radio. Our guest today is attorney Max Myers from the Mississippi Center for Justice. We're learning about the current session of the U.S. Supreme Court. We have thrown around a couple of websites today, and when this show is podcast later in the afternoon, we'll be sure to have the links to that information up on the show podcast so you can listen to the uh, oral arguments of the upcoming uh, Supreme Court cases or, you know, listen to the recaps as as we've talked about. Um, what And it, Max, you said you, you listen to yours while you go jogging? Absolutely, yeah. I, uh, I use the, as Professor Gershon mentioned, the Oyez app, O-Y-E-Z. Uh, it also allows me to save the cases so I can see what I've already listened to. Uh, and one time I, I upgraded my phone and my app was erased and I lost all of that. And it was, that was one of the most tragic days of my, uh, of my Supreme Court listening career. But uh, now, now we're back in business. Well, that's great. And you'll be able to listen to some interesting cases, uh, you know, in the next few weeks. And every one of them is important to the litigants. I think that's, you know, but the ones that we're putting national attention on, you know, deal with affirmative action, voting rights, and climate change in particular are the ones that I hear most conversation about. So let's start with the, uh, the students for fair admission. Um, what's, what's that case about and why is it important? So the Students for Fair Admission, I'm going to say SFFA uh, just for, or I might just call it the Harvard case and the UNC case. Um, these are two cases that were, like I said, originally consolidated and now split apart. They'll be heard separately, but they deal with the same action uh, or the, the same issue, which is that um, there is a f affirmative action in both of the admissions processes for uh, Harvard and for UNC, as well as for lots of other colleges around the country. Um, this has been something I'll say that was outright approved, uh, you know, with the stamp of approval by the Supreme Court um, as recently as 2003, out, you know, stating that uh, the, uh, you know, use of, of, of race in 
admissions processes is uh, you know is is a narrow enough uh, uh, way of 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 of, a, of, a, of a, obtaining the ultimate end goal of having diversity on the campus. Um, that was reaffirmed in 2016 in the Fisher case, which came out of Texas, related to Texas University of Texas's affirmative action process that they have. Um, and currently, it's being challenged by SFFA that's alleging in the Harvard case that um, Asian Americans are not being admitted at the appropriate race or at the appropriate rate uh, when compared to other racial groups uh, that are being admitted, specifically uh, black and Latino uh, applicants. And as a result of that, they brought a, a Title VI uh, claim, which is, is, comes from the 1964 Civil Rights Act, essentially saying that um, that in public education that you cannot discriminate against race uh, or, or sex, for that matter. And in this instance, they're saying that by using affirm by using race-based affirmative action, Harvard is uh, is is violating that because they are discriminating. They're, they essentially are saying affirmative action is discrimination. Um, I am excited to share my opinion about that. I'm going to talk about the the UNC case briefly just to say why it's a little bit different uh, before I come back to talk about some of the merits. The UNC case deals with a so Harvard is private, UNC is public, and so in addition to that. The UNC, in addition to Title VI, the UNC case also involves the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, and I think that's a really great opportunity to talk sort of about why this case matters now, um, and, what, and what I'll say is that originalism is something that the Supreme Court over the past couple decades has really adopted as being uh, one of the core tenets of how the justices are going to view cases. Uh, and by originalism, I mean they are now working at looking uh, to the founders, if it's a constitutional issue, or in the 14th Amendment, looking to the the drafters of, of that amendment from the 1860s uh, and, and 70s um, to determine what was that, per, what were those people's mindsets? What did they believe these words to, to mean based on what they, uh, what they understood at that time? Um, and this is a great example of why, even under originalism, affirmative action, the, the, the reading that, that SFFA is giving to affirmative action, saying that, it, it, that you know, using race in the admissions process is discrimination under the 14th Amendment, under originalism, that can't, that can't work. And, and the, the reason for that is um, when you look through the congressional debates and when the framers of the 14th Amendment in the post-Civil War Congress were going over what was this new you know, constitutional amendment going to, to mean and what was the, the basis for that, it was focused on ensuring uh, that the rights of African Americans were going to be preserved and enshrined in the Constitution. That is the, I mean, you, you can read the floor debates. You can hear congressmen from uh, Ohio, for example, uh, that, that, that actually, the congressman from Ohio who actually wrote the words, the 14th Amendment, who said something to the effect, I'm paraphrasing here, but he said something to the effect of this is this the entire point of this amendment is to ensure and, and enshrine the civil rights of African Americans in our country, and so for now, for the for SFFA to try to um, you know pervert that meeting and say that that you know by ensuring that African Americans are uh, properly represented on an equal per, you know basis on campuses, that that is somehow discriminating against other groups, I think really turns that whole idea on its head. That's a that's a great uh, description. It really is, and uh, I think of it from you know universities around the country. 
uh, you know, part of our process is we do a holistic view. I mean, the Supreme Court said we could do that of a person's application. And anytime we choose to admit somebody and not admit somebody else for whatever reason, that is uh, discrimination. That's what partly discrimination is, it's just choice. That doesn't mean it's wrong. Um, I mean, we have to make choices about who we admit, what kind of community we want to have. Uh, race can be a factor. Uh, and so if, this, if the Supreme Court over, uh, if the Supreme Court holds in favor of uh, students for fair admission, would that mean that we couldn't use that process anymore? It depends on what kind of a ruling they give. If it's a, a narrow ruling where they say, oh, you know, in, in, in this particular town, in this particular state, you know, you can't do that. You know, the, the, the narrowest possi possible or, you know, in, the, in these circumstances of Harvard, uh, you can't do that. Then and they don't speak anything uh, on the broad, uh, you know, topic of affirmative action. Um, that would not necessarily that wouldn't necessarily affect, uh, you know, affirmative action programs across the country. But if what the Supreme Court instead does is go back on their uh, the University of Michigan uh, cases from 2003 in which basically they the Supreme Court you know affirmed by Justice O'Connor writing this saying that um, diversity on the campus is a compelling enough uh, end goal for um, for universities to use race in their admissions decision uh, in other words if they were to uh, essentially gut all of the, the the last 50 years worth of uh, Supreme Court decisions and and essentially say that that no longer is diversity on campus a compelling uh, state interest in trying to you know to, to reach that then that that would that would automatically draw into question affirmative action plans from across the country so we have a lot to look look for in this opinion um, yeah and what about um, talk about uh, the uh, creative LLC public accommodations case too that's also an important one Absolutely. I, this is a case that comes out of Colorado. Uh, some of our listeners might remember the Masterpiece uh, Bake case from a couple of terms ago uh, in which there's a, an anti-discrimination law on the state level in Colorado. Um, and there was a, um, a cake baker uh, a couple terms ago that, that brought a case to the Supreme Court essentially looking for an exception or, or sorry, an, an exemption from the anti-discrimination law because they didn't want to bake cakes for gay weddings. This now, uh, the, the court decided that case really narrowly, and this kind of goes to what I was saying before with the affirmative action case. One of the options they have is always to decide just this case and not have it touch anything else. And that was essentially what they did in the Masterpiece Bake uh, case. Now, however, the 303 Creative Designs case is a web designer from Colorado uh, that does not want to design web pages for um, for they, you know for groups of people that they don't agree with uh, they, they say it's a, um, a a free speech issue you know a, a First Amendment issue the instead of there's no mention of religious exemptions there's no mention of um, anything that would give the court an opportunity to make this a small ruling it's really the, you know they're coming for blood in this situation they're, they're the 303 creative design is trying to have the Supreme Court essentially strike down the entire Colorado law. Um, and that opens up the door, you know, if they were to do that, that would open up the door to private businesses across that state being able to 
chalk up any kind of discrimination they want to use to First Amendment. You know, oh, I don't want, you know, in this particular case, it's designing a website uh, for um, a a homosexual couple. And in the future, what they might try to say is, oh, um, not only do I not want to do this, you know, do I not want to design web pages for gay couples, but also um, the example I heard on a a recent uh, lecture that I was listening to was um, if there was a... uh, a birthday cake that someone came for uh, a, for an African American birthday, uh, a young kid. They might say, "I don't, I don't believe in Black Lives Matter, for example," and so therefore I'm not going to make this cake. Um, that would potentially that kind of discrimination would be legal under a uh, a future court ruling if they decide to say that a person, an, an individual cake maker or website designers personal decision to discriminate or to express their views. Uh, is greater than the customer's right to equality in these in these situations. Well, and I'm here on Zoom. I'm looking at the two of you. What if I don't want to participate with curly-haired people? <laughs> that, it, that would be, I mean, that is exactly the the, the, t- the sort of um, door that this could open up. Um, it you know I, I'll say really quickly that I, I heard a really interesting idea uh, from one of the amici briefs. Those are briefs that are submitted not by people who are not part of the case um, that are just, you know, supporters of one side or the other that brought up this idea that if this is an LLC, so it's a, it's a, it's not a person, it's an actual, you know, limited liability company that by people found, you know, found those companies and, and in order to avoid personal liability and lawsuits in that sense, they're also removing themselves from the from the fold and so this is no longer oh, you it's can't not assume. a person's idea exactly. it's the co- okay well that will be one we will need to be looking forward to hey everybody thanks for listening to in legal terms on mpb think radio for professor richard gershon who hosts from the university of mississippi school of law i am liz gill and our guest today has been attorney max myers from the mississippi center for justice max we are so happy that you could join us today thank you thank you for having me i I really appreciate it we'll give him a tour of the studio later so (laughs) please think about why you choose mpb as your station for news and thoughtful discussion. Then support everything you love about MPB by contributing what you think is fair. Do it by calling 888-372-4483 or it just takes three minutes online, mpbonline.org. When you look at your vehicle, think of MPB. Need to get rid of your ride? Donate it by calling 877-MPB-4CAR. Need to have some work done on your truck? Listen to AutoCorrect Thursdays at 10, Saturdays at 11. An MPB license plate reminds you that MPB is with you wherever you go. Go to your county office and ask for an MPB car tag. MPB and cars, better together. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast.